Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today is part two of our summer reading series. Last time we talked about banned books, challenged books, books that people want out of libraries and why, books that poison children's minds. Today, we're talking about a more specific angle. We're talking about erotica. So earmuffs for some of you out there. Yeah, well, we're going to keep this conversation PG, but we are going to talk about erotic fiction because it is all the rage this summer. Um, I promised in the first episode that I was going to keep Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> mentions to a minimum. And here I go again. It's like I can't stop talking about E.L. James and Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, I, I've learned a lot about Fifty Shades of Grey in the last 48 hours. Yeah, me too. Uh, but you know what we should talk about before we briefly mention where Fifty Shades came from and like what it is and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Let's talk about the classics of erotica because erotic fiction started long before we had Kindles to <laughs> to hide what we're reading. Yes, erotic fiction came about long, long, long before Kindles came along to hide our naughty reading. Mm-hmm. And let's go way, way back to like 27 AD with a satiricon. Or you've got the Kama Sutra or the Decameron. Yeah, these are all tales of love and sexy times from a long, long time ago. Yeah, and also kind of instructions on, like with the Kama Sutra, mm-hmm. on how to be a good lover and, and pleasure your lover and touch, <laughs> touch your lover. <laughs> exactly. And it actually does give very specific instructions about the accent you are to use when you do these things. Your lover. Um, but one book that's a little bit more modern, but not, not very modern, actually, is Fanny Hill, Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure. Leisure. Uh, that's mentioned on a lot of top erotica book lists. It's by John Cleland. It came out in 1748, and it's about a, a naive country girl who comes to the big city and becomes a prostitute. And she loves it. <laughs> she just loves being a prostitute. Well, how, how lucky to find your calling. Indeed. There's also Aline and Valcourt, or the philosophical novel by the Marquis de Sade. Yeah, you can get, I mean, talk about Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Getting a little spicy there. And then there's the classic 1928 book uh, that we mentioned in the last episode because people didn't really get it into their hands until the 1960s because of censorship laws. And it's D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover. Lady Chatterley's Lover. Right. Chatterley. Chatterley. Um, Christopher Hart, uh, in 2002 for The Guardian, came up with some more suggestions. He actually recommends the Bible. Yeah, Song of Solomon. I saw that, and I have read Song of Solomon. I was quite the little biblical scholar mm-hmm. in my youth. Um, and, yeah, there I do remember a couple of times, you know, as a child being like, I'm going to flip to Song of Solomon. <laughs> Look out, Psalms. I'm going past <laughs> you. I'm getting to the good stuff. And being like, what does this mean? Interesting. Well, there's a, there's another love handbook, Handbook of Seduction by Ovid. It's the Ars Amatoria. Uh, it actually led to Ovid's exile from Rome. 
So not everybody. I, I would think that Rome was kind of loosey-goosey, but right. apparently uh, apparently not. Uh, Ovid was too hot, too hot for Rome. Uh, and you know what also would have been too hot for Rome is Story of O. And Story of O comes up a lot in these conversations about Fifty Shades of Grey because mm-hmm. um, it is a BDSM-themed erotic novel. And my goodness, it is... Uh, while Fifty Shades of Grey is often referred to as erotica light, mm-hmm. there is nothing light at all about Story of O. Right. Exactly. And that's all I'll say about it. Well, there's also nothing light about Flowers in the Attic by Virginia Andrews, which features, it's a series. It is a series. And it features consensual incest. Yeah, I hadn't heard of Flowers in the Attic before, but apparently, yeah, these kids get locked into an attic by their crazy mom. And, you know, uh, okay. You know, there are many different different themes of I don't know what to say now that's making it's, me it's, she's twitter pated well no not like that <laughs> no not, I mean I'm you're like, like you're verklempt you're all like whoa yes like, not, it's uncomfortable I'm not swooning no okay absolutely not trust me <laughs> I'm a witness um and we we have to mention Sappho right the poetry of and apparently there's some book called Lace by Shirley Conran that is that is very titillating. And that was recommended by Lucy Mangan, also at The Guardian. Yeah, and so the point of calling out all these titles is to say that the history of erotic fiction goes way, way, way back. But all of a sudden, it's now okay for women in particular to be reading erotic fiction because often, as we talked about in the romance novel podcast, women are the number one consumers of erotic fiction, um, and it's more marketed toward women, which is something that E.L. James has well learned because she is the author and former British TV exec who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey, which started out as online fan fiction, Twilight fanfic, that she was writing. And essentially, she just made the guy not a vampire and changed the names. And now she has like the number one selling book in the United States and in the UK. And it took off because of uh, it was printed by a small independent press in Australia. But it really took off because of digital sales and e-readers. Because, um, you know, <laughs> you don't have to carry around... An embarrassing fiction. book. Yeah, I've heard it's terribly written, though. Well, it's kind of like the the whole argument about things like Twilight, where yeah. people weren't huge fans of that, and some people have called that um, erotica as well. Yeah. Um, but it's funny though that uh, you're talking about not having to carry the book around. I was actually talking about Fifty Shades of Grey in anticipation of this episode recently with a couple of girlfriends at the pool, and. Um, we were going on and on and on about it, and then I n- looked across and noticed that there was a girl reading a hard copy of it. You go, and you go, she, girl. She, yeah, she was hanging out of the pool reading her Fifty Shades of Grey. Looked a little uncomfortable when she noticed we were talking about it and put it away. <gasps> really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's if it's poor writing, maybe you should be embarrassed. Still taboo. Yeah, there was an article about it in the New York Times that quoted a woman who requested anonymity because she was scared that her employers would find out that she was reading erotica. Well, I mean, and and we'll get into this a little bit more 
later. But it, it is interesting that all of a sudden erotica or erotica light, as the case may be, has taken off with women as opposed to pornography because there is that taboo that pornography is dirty and it's for men. Right. And erotica is more cerebral and it's for women. I feel like there's cultural reasons behind why that is and there's also mental biological reasons for why that is, why women are more drawn to things like erotica. And I also think it's worth considering the fact that the only reason why we're having this conversation is because, you know, e-readers and that discreet way of reading and consuming erotica has made it a lot more popular, but yet it's still something that women might be a little embarrassed about. Sure. There's still that taboo. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I wouldn't want to be on the train reading a romance novel. Well, it also just seems like, yeah, I mean, I, wouldn't you want to be alone, too? <laughs> like, uh, reading it in a public place also seems yeah. awkward. But not only that, but, I mean, there have been all these articles coming out about this book and how popular it is and the fact that, you know, obvi- it's dominated by women readers. And there have been articles and headlines I've seen that have been like, you know, popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey proves that women are nitwits. Stuff like that. So oh, wow. not only are you embarrassed to be reading erotica, something that's real real sexy, but now you're also embarrassed because men think you're stupid for reading it. Right. Whereas the same kind of uh, critique might not be leveled at pornography. And right. that was that was a question that I had with this episode was, what is the difference between erotica and pornography, d- aside from how it's often portrayed in a gendered kind of way, where erotica is for women mm-hmm. and <laughs> porn is for guys? I like that you did the upspeak there. <laughs> yeah. For I mean, women? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, clinical psychologist Leon Seltzer points out that a lot of the difference is attitudes, uh, attitudes about sex and sexuality. And he sort of puts eroticism in line with the fine arts, that it's about capturing beauty in the human anatomy and uh, expressing appreciation for the human figure. It's not necessarily to arouse the viewer or turn the viewer on, although the viewer might get turned on by looking at This is, you know, more art, obviously. But uh, whereas pornography is more in your face, it's a money-making venture, it's there just to turn you on quickly, get the job done. It's It appeals less to your aesthetic tastes. Right. And it's often more um, seen as more exploitative. You're Mm -hmm. exploiting human sexuality um, and cheapening physical intimacy for generally for self-pleasure. And Violet Blue, who is a San Francisco Chronicle sex columnist and author of The Smart Girl's Guide to Porn, told Oprah, yeah, even Oprah been talking about porn and erotica. It's everywhere. Um, she differentiates it by saying that porn is something that is a graphic sexual image that conjures up an animalistic reaction in you. You like it or you don't. Erotica is also graphic sexual imagery, but it has several extra components that resonate with the viewer, be it artistic, passionate, something that emotionally engages you. So that's why there's generally the story behind it and, you know, a relationship and... Um, you know, elements beyond just, uh, physical contact. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's less tawdry, less, less like whispering about it. I Mm -hmm. mean, it seems almost more justified to enjoy because there is an appreciation of physical intimacy of a relationship of the, of the human form. There's not just that wham, bam, dirty connotation to it. Right. And one of the misconceptions, too, that has come up with all of the Fifty Shades buzz is that somehow women consuming 
erotica and being interested in subversive themes like BDSM, you know, it revolves around the, the subdom relationship between an older, wealthy man and a younger female student, I believe, a college mm-hmm. student. Um, and it's nothing, it's still nothing new, as Joyce Lamb points out at USA Today. And she was, she was very upset with how it's been portrayed as like, all of a sudden, whoa, women, women want to get sexy. Yeah. Well, there's also the whole aspect, like you mentioned, BDSM. It's not new. That whole idea is not new to erotica writers. And so a lot of people who maybe are not familiar with that have taken issue with Fifty Shades of Grey, saying, you know, it, it, they take issue with violence in the book and the treatment of women. And while I haven't read it, so I can't, I can't argue either way, what I can say that if it, if it is a BDSM book or erotica light, I mean, isn't that kind of, if you're a submissive person in a submissive dominant relationship, isn't that par for the course? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's also being able to distinguish between fantasy and reality. We call mm-hmm. we refer to sexual fantasies as fantasies because it's more imaginative. It's mm-hmm. not a thing of uh, of what you would live your day to day life. Right. Just because with. you like to look at something, listen to something, watch something, read something, it doesn't mean you want to do it or want right. to do it to someone. Yeah, and then, I mean, and then you can keep arguing over and over and over again about saying, well, what about this? For instance, with flowers in the attic, consensual incest. I mean, that is, I don't, I, wow, you know, that's out there. And then you can say, well, if, you know, is that okay if it's just in the fantasy realm? So I can, I can understand why people might have some qualms about it, but, uh, I still think that, you know, on the other side of the coin is repression? I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's okay to explore, and erotica is a safe outlet to to do that. Yeah, um, Lamb interviewed Raylene Gorlinski, who's a an erotica publisher, and she says that you know even though erotica is not, or, uh, sorry, Fifty Shades of Grey is not true heavy serious erotica, maybe this is a way to get women to explore that subset of fiction. Well, yeah, and there have also been um, anecdotes. Uh, you know, this is referred to often as mommy porn, which is, I think, the worst thing to come out of this whole Fifty Shades thing. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> um, but ABC News calling it the mommy porn revolution has interviewed women saying that it has rejuvenated their romantic lives. Mm-hmm. And that they're going out and buying the sex toys described in the book. So the husbands are happy, too. Right. And just to put a little bit of science behind this, you know, we've we've kind of mentioned that that women tend to prefer a little more relationship, a little more than just uh, pornographic contact. I always get so tongue-tied when we start talking about S-E-X. But neuroscientists Ogi Ogas and Sai Gadam wrote A Billion Wicked Thoughts, and they analyzed billions of web searches, websites, porn videos, online erotica, personal ads, to figure out a little bit more about uh, sexual desire in a modern context. And they said, far and away, women go for erotica, whereas men go for porn, as we've said. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most popular site for women, sex site for women, I found this very interesting, fanfiction.net. Yeah. Amateur stories written mostly about Twilight characters. Yeah. Hello. Fifty Shades of Grey. There we go again. We love 
there's something about about those stories. Yeah, and and they did find that women, you know, like character-driven stories of romance and sexuality that feature characteristics that men aren't necessarily looking for: intimacy, closeness, relationships, love, all that stuff. Because they found that, you know, women need more cues to become aroused than men do. Mm -hmm. And so they look for more stimuli, basically, in the media that they are searching for online. And that's not to say that it is that it is harder, that female sexuality is is not as robust as male sexuality. It's just different. Yeah. The brain wiring is just a little bit different. Um, Now, we also need to touch on feminism because Mm -hmm. this whole... The fact that there are gendered arguments about erotica versus pornography and artistic value and all of that, um, not so surprising that second wave feminists certainly had some things to say about erotica. And generally, it was positive. For instance, Gloria Steinem herself in 1978 wrote in Ms. Magazine, erotica is rooted in eros or passionate love, and thus the idea of positive choice, free will, the yearning for a particular person, versus pornography, where the subject is not love at all, but domination and violence against women. Yeah, there, there are definitely these lines drawn that erotica is more women positive, sex positive, positive for everybody, whereas pornography is just degrading and it's just kind of bad for everybody, bad for relationships, bad for sex. Um, Audre Lorde, the, uh, uh, the poet in 1978, even went so far as to say that pornography and eroticism are two diametrically opposed uses of the sexual yeah, um, and along those lines, uh, Anais Nin, famous erotica writer in 1977, in her preface to Delta of Venus, said uh, that women are more apt to fuse sex with emotion, with love, and to single out one man rather than to be promiscuous. And that kind of goes along the lines of, you know, if we are plotting uh, sex on the spectrum of erotic at one end, pornography at the other end. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to say that they don't meet at some point, but it does. I think it is. Um, I think it's interesting that women are are more titillated, it seems, by erotica. Not to say, and this is also not to say that women don't watch porn or consume yeah. pornography. Absolutely. But this is coming from the Rutledge International Encyclopedia of Women. And it brings up because as I was reading all these quotes, these feminist uh, ways of thinking about erotica and pornography, I was thinking, well, what about the people who just like pornography? Yeah. Or aren't as drawn to erotica, maybe, as they are to pornography. And they did point out that the criticism of pornography in favor of erotica does leave little room for other tastes and preferences. And it could actually end up reinforcing stereotypes of women as being like, I'm going to just nurture you until you can't stand it anymore. <laughs> I need relationship always. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, and, and ever saying that erotica or pornography, one is is better than the other for women to consume and that is the way that they should, uh, you know, stoke their sexual desires is going to be off base at the end of the day anyway, because mm-hmm. it's directing, it's a directive about how to use your body yeah. and your mind. Um, and there is also a certain class implication uh, that can be associated with the erotica versus pornography debate, um, because erotica, like we've said, is often linked to artistic status 
whereas porn is delegitimized as just mass culture. You yeah. Know? Well, Susan Sontag uh, in 1967 argued that some works deemed pornographic actually do qualify as serious literature because of their ability to probe human consciousness. And I think that's an interesting tie-in to what we talked about in the last uh, summer reading episode about what makes up obscenity. Right. If it has a redeeming quality to it, if, if there is, if the meat of the story is, you know for a purpose, if it educates, if it uplifts the human spirit, then it's not counted as obscenity. So if a book, if there's redeeming value to it, you know, some people might count it as pornography, others might count it as literature. Yeah, and I can't remember which uh, book in particular she called out um, as an example of it being elevated to artistic status. And it might have been Story of O. Story of O, I think it was. Which is, I mean, especially coming from a feminist perspective, because the... The BDSM themes are so intense in the book and the character, the female character essentially is just, I mean, she's a slave to this man and it doesn't seem very uplifting, but, um, but again, going back to the, what was it? The Miller test where Mm -hmm. you have to take the entire body of work and not just bits and pieces where your eyebrow might be raised. <laughs> yeah. Well, while all of these women, Gloria Steinem, Anais Nin, are, are talking about all these things, this feminist perspective of erotica and pornography, there's a lot going on in society. And Carol Thurston, in her book, The Romance Revolution, said that during the 1970s, you know, more and more women are questioning and protesting sex-related inequities and injustices. They're also avidly consuming erotic historical romance novels. Yeah. And many of the heroines of these books uh, during this time, they're written during this time, uh, articulated a resistance to marriage. It's also during this time, they point out, that rape cases are on the rise. At the same time, you have this the, all of these books where heroines are fighting for control over their own bodies, for equal justice. So it's very interesting that some of these romance novels that could be perceived as erotica are sort of reflecting societal issues. Yeah, and it's also in the late 70s and the early 80s that you do see the publication of more mainstream and overtly um, erotic books it's like uh, Erica Jong's Fear of Flying, Nancy Friday's My Secret Garden, both published in, well, that's uh, 1973, so in the early 70s. Um, and then 77, we have The Height Report and The Fantasy File. Um, so, so there's the, you know, things start loosening up a bit. It was also the 70s, but <laughs> lots of people had mustaches then. But it's just funny that, yeah, all of this, I mean, that's going on 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And, you know, now the headlines are just, it just seems so recycled of saying mm-hmm. like, oh, we're reading a naughty book. Well, maybe it's the sheer popularity of it. The fact that Fifty Shades of Grey knocked Hunger Games off the top of the list. It's True. a New York Times bestseller. I mean, how many kind of risque books does that happen with right so it's just i guess it's it's the unique uh aspect of it yeah and well i mean i haven't read 50 shades either and i've heard similar complaints about its quality but i think it's i mean i I think it's a a, maybe a good thing you know why not uh have more women getting more comfortable about talking about sex absolutely and you know what fan fiction not my cup of tea but if that's how you get in touch with your sexuality, if that's how you learn what you like and don't like and connect with other readers, that's another thing is yeah. that a lot of women use those fan fiction sites to connect with other women writers, talk about erotica, talk about sexuality and sexual issues. So, I mean, if that's how it gets you into learning about things, then 
Yeah, sure. Fanfiction.net. So surprising. Yeah, most Twilight. popular sex site. Yikes. So, with that, uh, what kind of feedback should we ask for from listeners? Do they read erotica? Have they ever submitted erotica to a fan fiction site? Please do not send your erotic yes. fan fiction to our website. We are not no. going to read it now. Um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on it? Guys out there, too. Any, any fellas who prefer erotic fiction? Um, any comments on Fifty Shades of Grey? Let us know your PG-rated thoughts about our PG-rated episode. <laughs> Maybe PG-13. I don't know. Uh, momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. And we've got a couple here. This one is from M. It's about our jockstrap summer short. She said that she found it very interesting because in the podcast, you did not mention the female jockstrap. Now, it is uncommon to see them, but many females in the hockey community are now wearing a Jill short. A Jill short is a compression short or a mesh short. This depends on players' preferences, but the compression short is a bit more expensive. The short has a small pocket for the cup as well as Velcro strips at the bottom of the pant leg for holding up your hockey socks. While I'm not exactly sure when the the Jill first came around, I do know that it was used, or a variation was used, during the 1998 Olympics where women's hockey first made its debut. In the podcast, you also wanted to know if the cup was put in the dishwasher. That is a big no-no. A, because it's gross, and B, because usually, at least for women, the hard plastic is covered in a foam or soft covering that can be put in the washing machine. You can also put the whole short in the washing machine or just the cup. Lastly, more and more more women are not wearing the cup, but rather just the short. I find this interesting. While getting hit there is not very common, I do believe it is important to wear it. It would be like not wearing elbow pads or leg pads, which are both very important. Like the saying goes, it's better to be safe than sorry. And I've got one here from Isabel about nudist beaches. She's been to one. Yeah, she writes, you asked if any listeners had ever visited a nude beach or stayed at a nudist resort. Not only have I been to my fair share of nude beaches, but my little family and I spent a week at a nudist resort in Spain a few years ago. We're frequent travelers to Europe, and you know what they say, when in Rome. While it might not seem odd that someone had spent time at a nudist resort, it is a little crazy that we did. We're not hippies or consider ourselves part of the nudist movement. We're just a regular and religious little family from Seattle who decided to try something new. About the germs. It's required that you always have a towel with you, and everyone we saw had one. There will be no bare butt germs. I'm like Caroline in terms of being a germaphobe. I won't touch the remote in a hotel room, let alone put my naked butt where someone else has been. Word, sister. (laughs) So thank you to Isabel. And to everyone else who has written in, momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your emails. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And you can check out what we're doing during the week on our website, it's howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?